All right, guys. Um, well, first, let's uh, let's start our time by opening in a word of prayer. So if you could all uh, bow your heads and close your eyes with me as I pray. Um, Father, thank you for this evening. God, thank you really for every evening that you give us to meet together like this. Um, God, even though it might not be our preference uh, not being able to see uh, people in person, or maybe it is our preference, God, to be able to be at home and kind of do youth group uh, from the comfort of home. But whatever our take is on this time, God, I pray that we would be thankful, God, nonetheless, uh, for these moments, God, where we get to be with uh, other people, God, who are trying to uh, to know you, God, and to live for you. And I pray that you would help us to uh, just to know you a little bit better, God, through our, our time in, in your word tonight. I pray that you would give us um, ears that are willing to listen, hearts that are softened. And I pray that this would just be, um, yeah, an encouragement and a blessing for all of us. God, be with me. Please speak with me to speak boldly and 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 to speak clearly as well. And so, God, thank you again for this time. And praise in your son's name. Amen. All right. So, good evening, everybody. Um, as always, I just usually like to kind of say that it's good to see everyone uh, on Friday evenings. Uh, for those of you who are maybe newer or haven't joined us that often, I do want to specifically say thank you you to you uh, for joining us. Uh, this is the part of our time tonight where we get to read through God's word together and we understand how it relates to our lives today. And a, a quick reminder that I, I want to put out there is that if you haven't had the chance to download or view the notes yet, uh, I think Keith and a few other people put them in the chat earlier. So uh, you could scroll through there and, and download the notes. Uh, those will be important to kind of help keep track of how things are going because we're going to be talking about a decent bit today. So um, it, it might help just to keep track of things. And I'm also assuming that we all have our Bibles near us as well. I have my Bible right here. And if you don't have a Bible, for whatever reason, uh, I do want to also say that uh, please message me or maybe your small group leader right after this is over uh, to make sure that we can somehow get you one, right? Like if you don't have a Bible, we definitely want to uh, want to help you with that. So please let us know if for some reason you have a Bible, we'll figure something out. But if you do have a Bible or if you have a Bible app or access to the script, to scripture somewhere, uh, please open it to Mark chapter three, verses 20 through 35. And that's going to be our text for tonight. So Mark chapter three, verses 20 through 35. Uh, and it's been a little while since our last message in Mark. I don't know if you guys have realized that, but we've kind of gone through a few other things in between. We've also had some breaks and events and now we're back in Mark. Uh, but again, kind of as a reminder, we have been going through the book of Mark together, verse by verse as a junior high group. And so far, we've had the chance to kind of see a bunch of different things happen regarding Jesus and his ministry on earth. Um, just a quick recap, we've seen uh, him beginning his ministry. Uh, he's been performing a lot of miracles. He's been calling and appointing his, his apostles. And throughout it all, he's been gathering a lot of attention from people from all different sorts of, of, of the area. And that's certainly going to be the, the setting for our passage tonight is there's a lot of attention on Jesus. And I, and I want to ask maybe all of you in, in, in particular, though, to try and pay close attention to our time together tonight. And uh, maybe just a quick kind of suggestion. Um, I feel like I say this all the time, but I'm going to say it again. Um, if you can, maybe write down one point that either sticks out to you for whatever reason it could be, one point that sticks out to you, or maybe one question that you have uh, as we walk through this text together. Uh, there's going to be a lot that we're going to be talking about. So certainly there's plenty of room for questions and there's plenty of room for interesting points, I think, in the text tonight. Uh, in his book titled The Knowledge of the Holy, so there's a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, the late pastor and author A.W. Tozer, 
begins the very first chapter of his book with this statement. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll quote that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And those are some pretty powerful words because talking about importance is maybe one thing, but when someone's making a statement that's supposedly about the most important thing in life, and like that's a whole nother thing, regardless of whether you are a believer or, or not, each and every one of us has some kind of view who God is. Uh, the author Tozer later suggests that in some way, shape, or form, every part of life is impacted by this kind of view that we have of God. The, the way that we plan for the future, the way that we do homework, the way that we think about this pandemic, the election, the ways that we relate to our families, every bit of our lives is impacted by how we view God. And it, and it goes without saying that what we know about God is important, right? It kind of makes sense. Of course, what we know about God is important. But, but if I'm speaking honestly, sometimes I think it's hard for us to describe who God is, the, the God that we are supposed to know. And so tonight, my hope is that all of us are going to hopefully see a little bit more of who God is as he describes to us through his word. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to pause here really quick before we start reading the passage together. I'm going to kind of go off the rails a little bit because I want to mention just one word I want you guys to try to remember for later in our sermon, okay? Just remember this one word at this point in time in our sermon, and that is the word sandwich, Sandwich, okay? Remember that word, right? It's like, what? We're going to talk about sandwiches? Just hang on a second, okay? Remember that word. We'll come back to that later, okay? Uh, but with all that being said, please open again your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35, and we'll read the text together. I'll give you a little bit of time so I can open up my Bible as well. All right. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he, Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Excuse me. All right, so um, clearly there's a lot of stuff that's going on in this passage. There's a lot, as I kind of mentioned before, 
Uh, but tonight, I want to try to focus our attention specifically on some of the responses that the people are having towards Jesus. Our key idea for tonight in the notes is that true followers of Jesus don't just know about him. They know him. True followers of Jesus don't, don't just know about him. They know him. There's a difference between just kind of knowing things, right? Knowing facts maybe about people versus truly knowing, trusting, and relating with someone. I, I'm not exactly sure if this is the best example. I'm going to share it anyways. Have you guys ever gotten worried at the grocery store? It's kind of weird, right? Like, but I'm just going to say, I definitely have, uh, the example I'm thinking about is, uh, a long time ago, back when I was, uh, living with my parents, my family, uh, it was kind of, I don't want to say tradition. I guess it was tradition for me to go to the grocery store with my parents. Uh, usually my mom or my dad, uh, at any given point in time. Uh, and we would just go grocery shopping together on Saturdays. And there would be times where we would be in line, um, right about to go up to the cash register. And at the very last minute, my mom would turn to me and say, oh my goodness, I forgot to grab one thing on my list. I'll be right back. You stay with the cart. I'll be right back. And she would rush off to whatever aisle it is. And me being a six, seven, 13, 21, 24 year old, uh, would kind of just be standing there and being a little bit nervous, right? Like I'm a, I mean, especially when I was younger, I'd be really worried because I would kind of have all these thoughts in my mind. What, what if the cash register person asked me for a credit card? I don't have a credit card. I'm six. Uh, what if this person behind me asked me for a suggestion on whether to get the strawberry or the peach jam? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know. You just pick which one looks good to you. Um, the funny kind of interesting thing I think about that is, is that, even though there's a bunch of people that are around me, and even though these people are probably all well-intended, right? They're just at the grocery store and they're just doing their jobs. Uh, I didn't really know any of them, right? I might've known things about them. They're adults. Um, they're at a grocery store and they're going to buy things. I could tell that they all seem to be relatively nice people, but I didn't know anything about them. I didn't have any relationship with them at all. And so you could probably guess like how relieved I was to have my mom come back as soon as she went to go pick up milk or whatever it is. Um, the point being though, is that I didn't have a relationship of any kind with these people that are around me. I did have a relationship with my mom. And when it comes to God, the, the difficulty that we'll start to see is that, that sometimes we find it hard to ourselves to specifically call out ways that we know God. We know that we're supposed to know God. We know we're not supposed to be in relationship with him, but it, it might be hard to call out ways that we are supposed to know him, that we do know him. And this passage in part provides a really good picture, I think, of what God, of what knowing God actually looks like. And to help us think through that practically, we're going to be looking at three points that are structured from the passages that we just read. And the first point is this, that God is immensely powerful. God is immensely powerful. So for starters, we already have a lot of context in the earlier chapters of Mark about God's power. And it's displayed in the form of a lot of different miracles, uh, just to name uh, what's been recorded so far in Mark, what we've read up to so far in our time together. Jesus has resisted the temptation of Satan. He's healed a man with an unclean spirit. He's healed several people who were sick or oppressed by demons. He's cleansed someone with leprosy, which was a, a really serious disease at the time. He's healed a paralytic so that they could walk. Someone who was paralyzed, who couldn't walk before, he healed them so that they could walk. And he also healed a man with a withered hand, all these diseases, all these things. So, you know, let's be real. Like all that stuff is pretty incredible, right? I mean, I can't, I can't do any of that stuff. And I'm, I'm guessing none of you guys can. And at this point, I think when we're reading through Mark, it's not a shocking statement 
to say that Jesus is powerful, right? It's kind of like no surprise. Yeah, we've seen all that stuff in all these verses beforehand. And that's definitely the thought process that's kind of being brought to our passage for tonight. So starting in verse 22, we're introduced to what are called the scribes from Jerusalem, the scribes from Jerusalem. So the scribes were experts in handling written documents and their responsibilities typically included teaching and interpreting the law. Uh, when we say the law, we mean the Old Testament, right? It's scripture. In other words, if there was going to be anyone who was going to know God's word, it was probably going to be the scribes, right? After all, this was their job and their purpose in society. This is the thing that they did all the time. And at this point, the scribes that are being described here, they probably heard a lot about Jesus and all the miraculous things that he's been doing in his ministry. It would almost seem that they would be no strangers at all to the power of Jesus as it's been displayed. But as we read on in verse 22, we see the scribes immediately say the following thing about Jesus. Quote, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. The scribes accuse Jesus of being some kind of representative of Satan and that his power could only be explained by being the power of the demons. Now, first, before just going any further, I, I, I want to be clear. The scribes are very wrong. And we'll get more to that later, but just outright wrong. But what makes this interesting is, is that it still does show that even though the, the scribes might be wrong, it does show that they do believe that Jesus is indeed still powerful. The issue, though, is where they believe that source of power is coming from. They believe, or at least they say they believe, it is from Satan. Now, this also kind of serves as a recognition that Satan is also actually powerful. Like if you had a chance to join us for online service this past Sunday, uh, just for normal Sunday service, you might have heard Pastor David reference uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, which refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air and his dominion. His, his, his rulership over this fallen world. The scribes, the people, again, who seemed like they would be in the best position to know God's word and to know God, they see the miracles of Jesus and they attribute that power to Satan. Again, Jesus is indeed powerful, but the scribes are completely wrong about where the power is coming from. Jesus questions the scribes in verses 23 through 26, which is summed up with this one question. It's actually kind of awesome. How can Satan cast out Satan? How can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, how could Satan advance his cause if one of his supposedly own allies or friends was thwarting his plans, right? It's almost like saying, like, imagine you're watching a soccer team playing a game and a player that's on one team is trying to score goals on his own team. Right. Like that, that doesn't make sense. The whole objective of the game is to score goals on the other team. It doesn't make sense here with Jesus because he was, in fact, opposing Satan already in his ministry. He was moving against Satan. And why is he doing that? Because he is God. Because he is God. You see, as, as powerful as Satan is, Satan's power is only able to exist within the realm of what God allows. In other words, even if Satan's power is great, God's power is infinitely greater, unquestionably, undeniably greater. In verse 27, Jesus, Jesus refers to the need to, quote, bind the strong men in order to plunder his goods. And, and what he's actually saying is that Satan is the strong man. Satan's the strong man in that example. 
but Jesus is the one who's binding him up. Jesus is the one who's binding him up. So what he's saying is Jesus was already, already plundering Satan. He's thwarting his plans and he's proving that he is more powerful than he, than Satan is. He's proving his power over him. Who could oppose Jesus? Absolutely no one. There is none more powerful than God because he is God. There's none more, more powerful than God because he is God. An immediate follow-up question to that that we might all have is, do you see God as that powerful? Do we see God as that powerful? And do you see evidence of his power in your everyday life, even just today? Uh, just a quick suggestion. We'll talk more about this later. But one thing that has been really helpful for me to consider God's power is, is to slow down and to consider how amazing it is that God is the most important, the most powerful being, you know, in the, in the busyness of life, as all these things are going on, especially now, it feels like there's so many things that are going on in the world and in our lives. It can be easy to kind of mentally acknowledge that God is powerful, but sometimes difficult to point to specific and really personal ways that he displays his power all around us in the world. An encouragement is uh, maybe to use prayer as, as a break to, to moment uh, or use, use prayer or use like times of, of, of breaks, or even just like, as soon as you wake up, whatever time you need to find times to remind yourself that he is the most powerful being that will exist, that will ever exist in all of eternity. He is the most powerful being. And, and again, the encouragement uh, being to, to slow down, uh, to really take the time to consider uh, how God is powerful, even specifically in our own lives. Again, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, so again, we see that God is immensely powerful in this passage. Great. I, you know, that kind of, I think makes sense, right? Uh, but not only that, we see that God is completely opposed to sin. And that's the second point um, for our passage is that God is completely opposed to sin. Sorry, I had to switch it up. Um, quick question. What is sin? Okay. What is sin? And I'm glad that you are all rhetorically asking me that, even though you're probably not, but I'm going to take it as you guys are rhetorically asking me that at a very high level, sin is rejecting God. Sin is rejecting God. It's literally opposing him. I think it's very easy to look at this passage that we're reading right now and, and to identify maybe some people who are sinning, right? It's people who are sinful. The scribes are sinning, right? Like clearly they're the ones who are in the wrong. Uh, they completely misrepresent who Jesus is. And that seems like a no-brainer to us as the readers of this passage. But there's actually another group in this passage that's also in sin. Verse 21 says this about Jesus's family, his family. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. So Jesus' own family members, just like the scribes, are also in sin. But if you think about it, when you compare what Jesus' family is doing compared to what the scribes are doing, doesn't it kind of seem like the scribes' error is a lot more sinful or a lot worse? Sinfuler, sinfulless, I don't whatever the word you want to use, right? Doesn't it, like, like Jesus' family is trying to seize him and are basically calling him crazy, but, but the scribes are straight up calling Jesus empowered by Satan. Like, doesn't that last one kind of sound worse than the other ones? So again, remember I told you about something at the very beginning. Enter the word sandwich, right? Sandwich, 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 sandwich. Remember, I asked you to keep that word in the back of your mind early in the passage. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about that word right now. And when I say sandwich, what I'm actually referring to is a literary feature. Mark, who is the author of this book, 
he uses a lot throughout the book and it's called the Markian sandwich. It's actually called the Markian sandwich. It's a technique where Mark starts with one narrative and we'll call it like the bread of the sandwich, right? On the top. And then he starts and finishes a brand new narrative in the middle without finishing the first. That's kind of like the meat or again, the middle of the sandwich. And then he finishes off that first narrative at the very end, which is like another piece of bread. So it's narrative A, narrative B, narrative A. Does it kind of make sense? In our passage, we see Mark using this technique when he refers to Jesus' family at the beginning in verses 20 through 21. Um, he switches to the scribes in verses 22 through 30, and then he switches back to Jesus' family in verses 31 through 35. Well, you know, that's that's great in one sense to observe a literary feature, like, ooh, cool, right? But, but the question we must ask ourselves immediately after seeing something like this is, why, Right? There's got to be a reason why. Why? Why does Mark use this sandwich technique here in this passage? Why talk about the sin of Jesus' family first, but then abruptly switch to the sin of the scribes? It's because God, through Mark's writing, is trying to show that even though the sin of Jesus' family and the sin of the scribes seem extremely different, they're actually very similar. In both cases, the core of the sin, like the heart of the sin is opposition to Jesus. It's opposition to Jesus. It's seeing the work of what Jesus is doing in his ministry and then rejecting him despite knowing who he is. To put it even more plainly, both the family and the scribes would rather have life shaped their own way than the way that Jesus would want it. Junior hires everybody here, the sobering reality is that sin is not just something that we read about in the Bible that happened a long time ago, right? It's not just in the, in the text of passages that were just relevant, maybe sometime very long ago. Sin is real today, our own sin, and it affects each and every one of us that lives on this earth. And just as it was in our passage, sin is the rejection and the opposition of God. And that's exactly what we do when we commit sin. That's exactly what we do when we commit sin. So the times when, we, when conflict arises, the times when we disobey our parents, the times when we're mean to our siblings, the times when we gossip behind other people's backs, the times when we think bitter thoughts towards other people in youth group, all of these are examples of times when we fail to live the way that God wants us to live. And by doing so, we reject him. You know, I think the tendency of humans, all of us, is to sometimes downplay our sin, our own sin, and to see it as, you know, bad, but like not that bad. And I think most of us here would agree that we aren't perfect, right? I don't think anyone here would say that they're perfect, but certainly we can't be that bad, right? Uh, we, we can often look across the world and tell ourselves that although we aren't perfect, surely we're not nearly as bad as, as the worst people in the world. At least I'm not like, like that person, right? And, and to be fair, this might be, and probably is true. None of us here, I think, are like stealing things from people. We're not breaking property. You're causing chaos and destruction and nothing like that, right? Um, your parents might think different, but that's a whole different story. Anyways, uh, at face value, though, it, it, it does feel like even though we have our own faults, like we're still not the worst people, though, right? Like surely we're not that bad. But there is one issue with that mentality. It's, that, it's the same issue that might present itself in tonight's passage as well as we're reading. That issue is the standard by which we judge what is good and what is evil. The standard by which we judge what is good and what is evil. 
you know, we so often look out at the world on a horizontal level, right? At other people towards other sinners. And we compare ourselves against them. And that right there is the issue. Um, really quickly quoting Romans 3, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Emphasis on that last part, fall short of the glory of God. The standard by which all our actions truly matters is against God and God alone. That means the only reference point that matters is what God thinks of our lives, not ourselves and not other people. So, so why does God matter so much? It's because he is an immensely powerful God who creates us. He molds us and he does all these things to, so that we could honor and glorify him. Our lives purpose is supposed to be that we worship God in everything that we do, everything. So when we don't live for God in whatever capacity that might be, the chief primary offense of our sin is against God alone. It's against God. So going back to our original point, right? That second point, why is Jesus opposed to sin? It's because sin is the rejection of him. Jesus is opposed to our sin because it is what entices us to follow anything and everything else in this world other than him. And Jesus doesn't just stand there idly looking at sin, right? He's not just there like, oh, you're sinners. Cool. Right. He, he can't let sin go unpunished because he himself is perfect, right? Like that's kind of the definition. He's going to judge all things against his perfect standard. And if the standard is perfection, none of us have any hope. None of us have any hope. Left alone, we have no hope at all. But that is why the gospel message is so important. It's so important because God does not leave us alone. He doesn't leave us alone. Jesus in his coming to earth, in this very ministry we're reading about right now in this book of Mark, leading to his eventual crucifixion upon the cross, his death upon the cross, and resurrection, raising from the dead three days later, Christ takes the punishment that we all rightly deserve because of our sin. And he puts it on, and he takes it on himself on the cross. He takes it on himself on the cross. Jesus dies for us. He bears the complete guilt and the shame that we were supposed to bear. He takes it upon himself. By grace, we have been saved. So that now for those who trust in Christ as a Lord and Savior, they can be saved through Christ Jesus alone. So take a step back. How does, how does this play out in our lives today? How does this play out in your life today? Does this affect your life? Or is it something maybe that you struggle to think about and to apply in everyday life? You know, I think that we can all agree with, you know, myself certainly included, is that, that this isn't something that's easy to think about. It's not something that's easy to think often about. So here are a few suggestions to maybe kind of help us keep track so that we can think through this. Uh, the first suggestion is to know your sin, to know your sin. As God opposes sin, we ourselves must oppose sin as well. A good starting question to ask ourselves in this regard specifically is, do you, do you know what the most prominent sins are in your life? In other words, if I asked you, if anyone asked you, could you identify the biggest struggles that you have with sin today, right? Can you, can you identify what the biggest struggle is? 
We can't oppose something that we don't know. Therefore, knowing your sin, know your sin and bring it before God. Um, maybe kind of as a quick note in there, if you struggle to identify what maybe prominent sins might be in your life, uh, one thing to ask yourself, uh, in what areas of your life might you be resisting God the most? Where are you resisting God the most? And as an example, maybe you're stressing about school and, and upcoming tests, right? You know you should be trusting in God because he is sovereign, he's in control, and he's powerful and he's wise. But it just feels like you can't let go of a feeling anxious or worried. And even though being diligent and studious is a good thing, that could be an example of being unwilling to trust God and his perfect and good plan for you. Uh, that's certainly something that you can bring before God to ask for forgiveness. And it's certainly an example of us being able to maybe identify ways that we might be resisting God in our lives specifically. Okay. Second thing that we can maybe consider is to know our neediness. So the first again was to know your sin. Second, to know your neediness. It's kind of related to the first. So think about just even one way that you can remind yourself of your need for God in an everyday situation, right? Like try to think about maybe one way that you can remind yourself of your need for God in an everyday situation. So one of the biz biggest examples or one of the biggest blessings, excuse me, of youth group through so the thing that we're doing right now is in particular, I think having small groups, right? This thing that we're going to be doing later tonight, because in small groups, we have this opportunity to be amongst other people, right? What makes a small group or a group, a group is there's other people involved. So we got to be amongst other people who are also needy, like we are, right? Like no one is perfect. We are all here for the same reasons. We are all needy and we need God's grace. We're sinful people who need grace. So a quick application, maybe just kind of as a extension to you, is to try and share during small group, right? To be reminded of your neediness is to be an active participant in small group. Because I think one of the things that ends up showing itself as you share more and more in small group is it becomes very clearly evident that we are all needy and we need God's grace. There is not one of us that does not need God's grace. And that includes, I mean, not just the students, but it includes the advisors as well. That includes Pastor Eric. That includes Keith. That includes everybody here. We all need God's grace. We are all needy. So we've talked about God as being immensely powerful. We've talked about God being completely opposed to sin, specifically our sin. And now we come to an interesting close to the passage. And that is a reminder that God is overwhelmingly gracious. God is overwhelmingly gracious. Um, a bulk of what I want to mention here is in verses 31 through 35. But before I get there, I do want to briefly mention the verses just before that. I don't want to skip them. Uh, so I'll read them again for us. It's verses 28 through 30. It says, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So I'll be honest, for the sake of time, we're not going to be able to go too much into this. Uh, but Jesus is describing what is called, uh, what has been called the unforgivable sin. And that is blasphemy or verbal slander uh, of the Holy Spirit. And, and that has been a sticking point for a lot of Christians across the church history. And the concerns uh, that come up is that many have felt, um, certainly as fears, is that is, is not knowing whether or not maybe at some point they have or some point they will commit this particular sin. And there is a lot to be said here, right? There's a lot that to be said here. So if you have questions, you could talk to Keith after this. 
but based on what we know from scripture, right, based on what we see from the context of all of these, of all the, of the gospels, even the letters of the entire scripture in general, um, is that God protects his own. God protects his own. And it seems uncharacteristic for God to allow one of his people to commit this particular sin. So again, not a whole lot of emphasis on that piece. And again, if you have questions, please, you can always talk to us after, but that's it. I do think the first part of that verse is interesting because it's an excellent transition to the point that God is overwhelmingly gracious because in it, Jesus states his willingness to forgive all sins, even the ones that are committed against, I mean, the ones that are committed against him, like I shouldn't say even the ones that are committed against him, Jesus extends forgiveness to those who will place their faith, faith in him and call him Lord and not just forgiveness, not just forgiveness, right? This is where we transition to verses 31 through 35. Again, I'll read that quickly. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God. He is my, he is my brother and sister and mother. So to close here, it is plainly you guys for those who are in Christ, for those who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus as their Lord. God does not only forgive them of their sin. He does not only forgive, he makes them a part of his family. He makes them a part of his family. As Jesus says here, these become his brother and sister and mother. The point again is that God is overwhelmingly gracious. And this is it. This is absolutely mind blowing. You guys, that if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and savior, you aren't just plucked out of your sinful life and then just put on some random path to heaven, just kind of on your lonesome, you become a part of a relationship with God. You become a part of a relationship with God, the immensely powerful God, so that you no longer just know things about him. You don't just know things about him. You get to know him. You got to be in relation with him. And as your creator and sustainer, he knows you. He knows you and every detail that makes you, you from the best parts of you to the most sinful and ashamed parts of you so that you don't have to come to him in fear or shame because he already knows. He already knows you. Immensely gracious. And with the knowledge that we have, again, an overwhelmingly gracious God who invites us into his family, uh, there's a few things that I want to leave us with to consider of, of things that maybe can uh, encourage us, again, to confide in him, uh, even during our most difficult times. So a few things to kind of think about in light of this entire album that we've talked about for this passage. So one uh, is an encouragement to see God's immense power in everyday life. Again, we kind of mentioned that before. We're mentioning it again here. So personally, just on a side note, um, like I struggle with this in the way that, you know, specifically that I pray. You know, sometimes praying for things like uh, my unbelieving friends to know Jesus or for the endurance during a difficult trial, right? There's hard things that happen in my life sometimes and just praying to God that he would help me get through it. And even though sometimes I do pray, sometimes I find myself giving up on praying, right? And sometimes that's due to laziness, but oftentimes I find it's due to a lack of belief that God is actually powerful. I don't actually believe that God is powerful. I personally need to commit that we, you know, at least in that example, I need to commit uh, to prayer as a constant reminder that God is indeed as powerful as we know him to be. 
So kind of as an example for my own life, an, exam, an example of an encouragement for you is to also consider and to see that God is immensely powerful, not just in an abstract and separate sense, kind of outside in the rest of the world. He is immensely powerful and demonstrates that in our own everyday life. Number two is uh, God is far more willing to forgive than we are willing to repent. So I'll say it again. God is far more willing to forgive than we are willing to repent. And I'm not going to be ashamed of saying this. This is from Pastor Eric, like literally verbatim. So I'm not going to take credit for that. Um, even in our continued rebellion, God still forgives us. Continued rebellion, right? Growth itself, it's not necessarily going to be immediate or as quick as we'd like it to be. But that is okay in the sense that we are still a part of God's family. We are sinful. We are very sinful. And no one knows that better than God himself. And yet he forgives us despite our continued failure. This is evidence again of God's grace that he is immensely gracious. He forgives us more than we are willing to repent and to bring our sins to him. And thirdly, God's graciousness towards us allows us to be gracious towards others. We talk about God's graciousness applied towards us. That allows us to be gracious towards others. We are not now only a family with Jesus, right? As it describes here, if we believe that Jesus is our Lord, we are part of his family. We're not only just family with him. We are also family now with other believers, the church, right? Like the people that we do church with, with the church family. That is, that is an extension of God's grace here is that we have an opportunity now to be able to demonstrate God's grace in the lives of other people. And that often starts with the very people that are here in this youth group tonight, the people that you're part of within small groups, we have an opportunity to extend grace or to be gracious towards others in the way that God has been gracious to us. And then maybe lastly, as we didn't deserve the grace that was extended towards us, we're also able to extend grace towards others who are undeserving as well. So Christian or not, right? Whether it's someone who is the nicest person to you or the person who is just really mean and just you, for some reason you don't get along with, God's grace extended towards us because it is just so immense and overwhelming, provides us with the ability to be gracious towards people, even though they might not deserve it. Reason why is because that's what God does to us. He gives us grace when we don't deserve it. And that is the example for us, is being able to extend it towards others. So again, thank you guys for, for paying attention. Let's close our time in prayer, and then we're going to break up into our small groups. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening together. I thank you again for this time you've given us to read this passage. And God, if anything, I pray that you would help us to at least consider, God, this call to know you, God, I pray that we would be able to identify times in our lives, God, when we can see that you are a God who knows us and that we can trust in you. God, I pray that our faith wouldn't be grounded just in um, in platitudes or just in sayings that we kind of toss out in the air, but, but God, we would know you personally, God, and be in relation with you and that we would trust you, God, for you are powerful, for you are opposed to sin, God, and that is something that empowers us to be opposed to sin as well. And God, you are gracious to us, so gracious. And I pray that we would be trusting in you because of that, God, and that would be demonstrated in our own lives. So God, be with us now as we break off into small groups, help us to share well, and just enjoy our time together. God, thank you again so much and praise in your son's name. Amen.